Hey everyone, Misaligned is back this week and Megan is back as well. Megan, how are you doing today? How was your trip? Oh, I'm great. I had a great trip to the uh, Midwest. I probably gained about 5,000 pounds from eating <laughs> uh, Portillo's, White Castle, and Culver's, but that's okay. It was worth it. Always worth it when you can travel and eat all the food. <laughs> oh my gosh, I smashed a 10-pack of sliders from White Castle. Nice. And I did not end up in the ER with any heart attacks, <laughs> so I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, today we're going to be talking about our book pick, but before that, Megan, I know you want to mention a concert, so why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so last night, we are recording on Monday, obviously, so last night was Ariana Grande's One Love Manchester concert. And some of you might be like, well, why does this have any relevance to this particular podcast today? Well, it's about pop music and to a degree rock music as well. Ariana and her management team, which includes Scooter Braun, who also manages Justin Bieber, brought together a whole plethora of artists, um, some from the UK, like Marcus Mumford and Robbie Williams and Take That who are lesser known names here in the States, unless, you know, you know, Marcus Mumford from Mumford and Sons. And she also brought together a huge selection of American pop stars like Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus. Um, let's see. Oh, yes. Justin, of course. And she also had artists like Image and Heat perform, Little Mix and Coldplay. And the Coldplay performance was actually really cool because if you're not familiar with musicians from Manchester, you might not realize that um, Oasis is originally from Manchester. And Coldplay, or rather Chris Martin with Ariana on the stage, sang a cover of Don't Look Back in Anger. I know that on the internet, there were some rumors being passed around that, you know, Liam and Noel Gallagher would reunite for One Love Manchester, um, put to rest, you know, that feud that they've had for years to sing that song, which would have been wonderful, but they didn't. And uh, in a surprise twist after Coldplay set, Chris Martin invited Liam Gallagher up on stage and Liam performed some Oasis hits like Live Forever and one of his new songs because he's doing the solo thing too right now. And sadly, Noel did not join him. If you paid attention to music news within the past year or so, the brothers have been feuding that badly that I believe Liam called Noel a potato, which is my favorite insult of all times and also what I call my brother, uh, not as an insult though, because he is a potato. But... Liam took to Twitter and kind of put his brother on blast. He's like, yeah, you were out of the country. So were all of us. But we made it there um, with a choice expletive, which probably I won't say for the sake of, you know, <laughs> this podcast has a decent PG rating. Um, but yeah, it was a great show. Ariana brought together a great group of people. And you know what? It shows that she has a big heart. I'm still not hugely fond of the fact that she's got Broadway training and she still can't enunciate to save her life while singing live, but she's got a great range. I'll give her that. 
she is actually quite talented and of course i choked up a little when she performed with that high school choir with a little girl who sang and she started crying because the little girl was crying and thus you know the audience was crying and myself and it was just good like she sang with mac miller fueling some potential rumors that they may or may not be engaged and she had montages from other famous artists like U2 did a nice recorded video um Stevie Wonder had a recorded video and song she had a montage of stars from the UK and the US including Kendall Jenner Sam Smith 21 pilots and a few others saying that they're standing with Manchester. And last I saw, I believe that over $9 million was raised for the British Red Cross for the victims of the Manchester bombing. So pop music has a way of bringing everyone together after a tragedy. And I mean, my heart breaks for the fact that her concert two weeks ago had that awful bombing and that this was the concert for many girls. It was their first concert. So to have this charity concert come together and show the world that, you know, Manchester is strong and it's okay to move on with your lives after something tragic, that music does heal all, especially in the wake of what happened on Saturday in London. So pop music, love it or hate it, which, you know, I tend to fall in the middle on that sometimes, it really does help heal and bring people together, like all genres. Like, actually, Black Eyed Peas performed as well, and they did their hit Where is the Love? And Ariana, her vocals were fantastic on that song. Fergie left the band I think it was announced last week that she was leaving to focus on solo stuff or being a mom or something. I don't know. So to see Ariana fill in, that was actually really wonderful. And unfortunately, in the wake of 9-11, that seems to be the song that a lot of people choose to play ad nauseum to show that, you know, we need love in today's world. Right. And I think because of that association, too, it's sort of the one that gets brought up the most when things like these happen and do you know if ariana performed with every single person or yes and no okay so she definitely did perform with some of the artists like chris martin had her on stage to sing uh don't look back in anger and they actually put the lyrics on behind chris which was really cool because i'm sure a lot of the kids in the audience might not have heard of Oasis or even in the United States some people might not have known what that song was just like I'm sure a lot of teenagers here watching probably didn't know who Oasis was or Liam Gallagher right and she definitely performed with Mac Miller as I said she sang with the chorus um Black Eyed Peas she did a lot of solo stuff um she made a last minute switch in her um, lineup of songs to sing side to side, which she chatted with the mother of one of the victims, Olivia, who was a teenager killed in the bombings. And Olivia's mom said, you know, Olivia would have wanted to hear the hits. She would have liked to hear something upbeat and happy, which is why she did that one. 
Um, and at the end for the song One Last Time, she actually had what appeared to be mostly everyone that performed that day with her on stage singing in the background. Okay. Yeah, because like I was telling you before we started recording, I didn't even know that this was happening yesterday. I knew there was something going on, but I hadn't been keeping up with the when and where of it. And, you know, I was watching a movie last night and it switched to, I switched it back to the TV and this had just started, but it was already, you know, like 10 or 11 at night. And I knew it was going to be quite a few hours, especially if, you know, there were that many people performing. So the only song I caught was Where's the Love? And because she was performing with the Black Eyed Peas on that, I wasn't sure if she was just going to be performing with everyone or if it would be a mix. So it's really cool that she did end up going with the mix, though. And you know, yeah. what they did was definitely great. And they had a huge, huge venue to do it at, too. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what venue it was at, because I'm not quite familiar with British venues. But what I will say is here in the States, um, you could watch it on Freeform, which was formerly known as ABC Family. And I know that several iHeartRadio top 40 stations were live streaming it as well because during part of it so it started at two eastern time and ended around five so that's a hefty lineup for a show right but i was going to chipotle yesterday and was channel surfing and actually heard uh let's see little mix no no i take that back ariana was on stage singing and then it went into little mix so i liked that there was a partnership with iHeartRadio to get this concert live to anyone who wanted to hear it if they weren't at home watching it on television. Yeah, definitely. Well, why don't we go ahead and discuss our book pick now, which for the sake of everyone, I'm just going to call it Yeah, Yeah, Yeah by Bob Stanley because it has quite the long title. If we end up saying the whole thing every time, it would be a little ridiculous, but this book was quite a long one. So, Megan, I know it took you and I quite a bit to read this one, and then with your trip, we had to push the episode another week, which was lucky for me, because I still was not done with the book (laughs) when you told me that. So, yeah. I mean, I got through it pretty quickly. Right. It just took you a while to get it from the library, right? Yeah. So the day it was supposed to arrive back in the library, it hadn't yet. And I was just like, oh, great. This is going to be fun. Right. So I got it a few days after it said it was supposed to be back. Yeah. Well, I just want to talk a little bit about why it sort of took me personally so long to get through this. Because as you know, Megan, I don't really take too, too long to read books. I think you and I are kind of on the same page here where we read so much that for it to take me a while to read a book is kind of like a weird thing. And I think because I took classes at Drexel that covered similar content to this or sometimes the exact same content, you know, I took various classes on like rock music, pop music, what have you. So there was a lot of overlap for me. And the way that this book was written, it sort of made it feel a lot more like a textbook for me. And one of the things that was sort of 
making it hard for me to get into my reading flow was when, you know, Bob Stanley would mention a song and then he would have to put what it charted at and in what year. And I think having so many of those in the book, it just kind of like kept taking me out of that reading flow and it just took me way longer than it should have to get through this book. Oh, you mean like in chapter 39, Islands in the Stream, the Bee Gees, where it literally starts out listing the 1978 Billboard number one hits? That wasn't so much the problem, but it's like when he would just have it within the sentence. Like, I took a picture of a page for a different reason. Yeah, I see this. Uh, On page 349 of the same chapter that I just mentioned, he has Take How Deep Is Your Love, number 177. Yes, that. It would just keep throwing me off. I was like, I don't need to know where every single one of these songs charted, especially for songs that you sort of already have an idea would have charted anyway, like the Michael Jackson songs, the Prince songs, Madonna songs, and what have you. And it's like, I don't really need to know the exact placement of it. So it felt like he was trying to throw so much like textbook kind of information at you Mm -hmm. in this that I was like, oh, I cannot get over this. And, you know, he he would do it multiple times in the same sentence, too. Like, I have one. It's from the metal chapter. And this actually was not the sentence I was going to quote, but I'll use it as an example anyway. It says, along with the sequencers that updated their sound on Here I Go Again, number 187, and Is This Love, number 287, there was now poodle-haired eye candy for the girls, too, and... Just so the boys didn't feel shortchanged, Coverdale's wife, Tawny Kit, it looks like it should say Kitten, but I don't actually know, regularly appeared as a vixen in their Duran Duran styled vaguely erotic videos. So that first part there, it's like, okay, you're basically just telling me these two songs went back to back in 87. And I feel like you could just put that in the sentence that way instead of putting number 187. And this song, number 287, I feel like there were better ways to have incorporated that into the sentences if it were really necessary. This was definitely not a book for an everyday consumer. I will say that. It was more for someone who's definitely interested in what goes on in the world of music, especially with the storied history of pop music and how it intertwines with other genres like R&B, metal, surprisingly, and rock and roll. Like... In the 1975 Storm Warning chapter, um, there's a little blurb in here about the Ramones. And it's quite interesting where he talks about how the Ramones had scored a few minor UK top 40 hits with Sheena is a punk rocker, Swallow My Pride and Don't Come Close, which the radio wouldn't touch. In the States, Rockaway Beach was their only sniff of a hit. And... It's interesting to see the statistic because it charted in 1978 at number 66. So this book also wasn't quite for an American consumer either. Um, The author is British, it appears. Uh, Yes, he is a music journalist, DJ, and record label owner who lives in London. And he co-founded the band St. Etienne. I probably butchered that, and I'm sorry. (laughs) But this book also focuses on some chapters that, you know, I probably glared over 
because it was something that just didn't interest me. For example, um, it comes a lot later on. Like, in the 60s and 70s, Brit rock was almost synonymous with a lot of American music because of Beatlemania, because of right. the Rolling Stones. These Brits got so popular here that it's just hard to imagine what even the American landscape would be today without them. So, I mean, he even opens the book, too, talking about Bill Haley and Jump Blues and Elvis Presley getting into some of the American grit. And he doesn't really fully get into, say, British stuff until chapter five. But it focuses on a wide amount of genres like folk, rock, hip hop, soft rock, um, hard rock. Some chapters will specifically focus on bands like the Monkees or the Sex Pistols, the Clash and Punk Rock. So it goes in. It is. I like how it's organized because it does go from the beginnings all the way through modern day. Right. And this edition, it is important to note, is the first American edition, at least the one I checked out from my library. It was originally written in 2013, and the first American edition came out in 2014. And the British version actually got a smaller title. It was first published in Great Britain under the title, Yeah, 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 The Story of Modern Pop. Right. So this book, it appears, had a lot of the British stuff taken out just for American audiences. So in here, I mean, we've got This Is Tomorrow, Craftwork, uh, and Electropop. And if I'm remembering this correctly, I do believe that Craftwork was behind Zombie Nation, maybe? I don't know. Wouldn't I surprise have no me. idea. <laughs> um, I'm probably going to go look that up when I stop talking. But electropop, you've seen interwoven into the American landscape now with artists like, um, I don't know, the Chainsmokers with their bland, awful version of electropop. And another thing in here, like they talk about Chicago and Detroit house and techno. I mean, if you're really, really, really into music and different genres, then yeah, maybe that would be something that interests you. But house music hasn't been something that I've ever wanted to really seek out. It's fun to dance to from time to time, I guess. I don't know. But then it goes into Smiley Culture, Acid House, and Manchester. And I do know from, you know, just studying pop music, even casually getting the roots of like the Spice Girls and stuff that Manchester has a huge impact on the musical landscape and of course this culture is also talking about MDMA and club drugs which definitely still has a stronghold here in the states I mean rave culture is still quite popular I don't know what's popular with the youth so I'm, I'm turning <laughs> into like Steve Buscemi's meme just like hello fellow youths or whatever but um, yeah, no, it goes into the 80s about all of this stuff, which, yeah, I did definitely glance over. Oh, well. <laughs> I think some of the other issues I had with it were that he spent so much time on more of the beginning stuff that at by the end of the book, it's like 
the 90s and stuff felt really rushed like as big Mm -hmm. as boy bands were i feel like that definitely gets glanced over especially for you know the ones here like in sync backstreet boys 98 degrees and whatnot but one of the things i could not get over was the fact that the metal chapter was longer than both the michael jackson chapter and the chapter on prince and madonna because he has this sentence in the metal chapter it says metal is as much a rite of passage as a genre of modern pop and i don't know if i could disagree with that any more than i do because i feel like anyone who is involved in metal music and I don't want to speak for all of them. I'm sure maybe some of them enjoy pop music, but I feel like most metal bands and metal band members don't care about pop music at all and would not think of themselves as pop artists in any way, shape, or form, basically. So this book really felt like to me that he was, one of the points he was making was that all genres sort of have something to do with pop. And I think that's why, you know, you have a lot of these different genres included. And while that might not be something I agree with in the way of them being involved or part of pop music, it's still informative about those genres. So I think the thing I'm more hung up on is the fact that he's calling this the story of pop music and then throwing in all these other genres instead of just making it sort of like a story about music in general. Right. Before I go on, Zombie Nation is actually by Kerncraft 400. Close enough to a uh, craft work, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it has I craft in there. Completely. <laughs> but yeah, no, I did find it interesting. Like, like I said, this book was definitely tailored towards British audiences. And I feel like when they decided to make it in America, they just hacked out the things that they thought American audiences might not like. And for some reason, some people think, oh, America, rock and roll. Sure, let's keep in all these things. Because there's a chapter in here about hard rock. Right. Which I actually found quite interesting, especially since it mentioned, you know, Fleetwood Mac. And I'm still on a kick from seeing Guardians of the Galaxy 2. (laughs) Where, and I quote one of my friends, he said that movie turned him into a Fleetwood Mac fan. Interesting. (laughs) Yes, if you've seen the film you will probably understand why. Because it might be one of the best uh, scenes I've seen in an action movie without, you know, giving out spoilers. Um, But yeah, it's, it's nice that they talk about this hard rock, but it's what's considered hard rock in this book is considered, you know, classic rock now, like Creedence Clearwater Revival. I think that happened a lot with the metal chapter because I could have sworn he put Bon Jovi in the metal chapter and I was like, huh? No, not really, sort of thing. And a lot of that stuff, I would say, from the hard rock and some even from the metal chapter, I felt the same way about. I was like, this, we don't call those these things, you know? So I think even though I felt differently about certain points that he made about the various genres that weren't, you know, strictly pop, like the big artists and everything. One of the other things I had mentioned was that he spent a lot of time on more of the beginning stuff and with the back end feeling a little rushed. I think Beyonce got a mention in what, like the last page of the book, maybe for the fact that she went solo and released crazy. And I was like, wait, the books like we're done. This is how we're ending this. All you're saying is Beyonce went 
solo and released a song. And I was like, I mean, it literally does say from Bill Haley to Beyonce. Yeah, but I was just expecting a little more on Beyonce, considering how big of a pop star she is. And this is true. With this book being written in 2013 and the American edition coming out in 2014, it doesn't seem to go quite far enough because Beyonce went solo, what, like, I don't even know, 10 years ago at least now? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it just felt like an odd place to end it and to give Beyonce such a little part in it, considering the fact that she is in the American version's title. Yeah. And actually, before I I actually want to talk about some stuff in the prologue and the epilogue. But before I do, I love the fact that in the ABBA chapter, or ABBA, if you've pronounced it incorrectly for years, like I have, (laughs) um, whoops, they talk about how they got their start on the Eurovision contest. And honestly, if there was ever a book written about the Eurovision contest, I would so read that. It is one of the best things to come out of all of the EU. Uh, Eurovision is a yearly song contest, which is a lot like American Idol, but countries vote and the voting process is extremely weird. Um, I honestly don't know how it works. Sometimes you get gems like in Ireland, a turkey sang one year, like an animatronic turkey. This year... Some guy from, I think it was Portugal, won. And it's just some of the stage performances are absolutely outlandish. So they went from like, you know, simple American bandstand style performances to these crazy, almost Lady Gaga-esque things. It's definitely worth checking out. Eurovision rocks, and I have an unashamed love of it. (laughs) But it is important to talk about that. Like, it's very, 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 very European. And I mean, countries will send different artists and they have to go through different rounds in the individual countries before moving on to like the semis and the finals. And it's, yeah, it's just confusing. But um, yes, the prologue and the epilogue. So when I started reading this, I took note that in, let me pull up my little notebook here. I actually did take notes on this. Yes. So Make Believe Ballroom, which aired on WNEW in 1935. That's pretty early to start out something about pop music, which is really cool. So Martin Block decided he wanted to play or have a radio show based on his personal record collection, which back in those days was kind of unheard of. And I found a comparison for this um, in today's day and age. So on XPN, a station that I have talked about endlessly on here, and I love dearly, actually has a program now called Dave's World. And it features David Dye, former host of the World Cafe, current host of um, XPN exclusive programming like Funky Friday, um, a voice that, you know, people have heard all around the country but he does this dave's world segment every sunday and it is literally all records from his collection that he wants to put out as a freeform kind of format where it's just anything goes and i thought that was interesting that back in 1935 someone wanted to do that and you still see people like the legendary david die doing that 
today in 2017. So that's always fun that you see the formats haven't completely changed in radio, even though we have, you know, a lot of digital stuff where uh, going back to iHeartRadio stations, um, down here, I can pick up DC 101 and XL 102 out of Richmond, especially on the weekends after a certain time. I think it might be 11 p.m. or midnight, maybe. Um, both stations automatically switch over to the same feed. So you can hear literally the same stuff, not at the same time, just shortly after each other based on, you know, timing of the stations. Um, so it shows that radio still has a strong point in today's society, despite the payola and the switching over to the same feeds and not having it be as individualized as it used to be. And tying that all in, yeah, radio still... You'd think it's becoming obsolete, like people thought vinyl records were becoming obsolete, um, especially with the rise of satellite radio and HD radio, which expands frequencies. But the FM dial is still a stronghold on cars. It's still something a lot of teenagers will listen to for guilty pleasure music, uh, in my case, or <laughs> even, um, even though I'm not a teen. But it's just something that, you know, won't die an untimely, awful death. I think part of that, too, that you mentioned with them being in the cars and everything is because people aren't buying mm -hmm. themselves a new car every year. You know, cars stick around for quite a while, pretty sometimes oh, until yeah. they don't run. So if teens are getting, you know, hand-me-down cars from their parents, they might not even have aux cable abilities or anything or Bluetooth like that. So it definitely is something that won't be as obsolete as we thought it would be as quickly as we thought it would be, maybe especially with the rise of like Spotify and even Apple Music and their Beats Radio programming. Mm -hmm. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, where we both mentioned, you know, the different genres. Right. And even how you felt some of them were a little weird to include about pop music. I do want to include this snippet from the prologue. I'm kind of glad I flipped back to this too. But in the prologue, he writes, what exactly is pop? For me, it includes rock, R&B, soul, hip hop, house, techno, metal, and country. If you make records, singles, and albums... And if you go on TV or on tour to promote them, you're in the pop business. If you sing a cappella folk songs in a suburban pub, you're not. Pop needs an audience that the uh, artist doesn't know personally. It has to be transferable. Most basically, anything that gets into the charts is pop, be it Buddy Holly, Black Sabbath, or Bucks Fizz. So the Patti Smith groups, because the night is pop music, as is Chariots of Fire by... Vangelis, I think I said that right, and the Marcel's Blue Moon. The charts are vital social history. So that's probably also why he's including the chart numbers, because as he says, it's vital social history. And the fact that he considers all of that pop is very interesting, because you wouldn't think that maybe like an indie artist, of which there are 10 pages about the start of indie music in this book. Right wish there was more <laughs> um but you it's hard to kind of picture someone say if we talk like indie folk 
for example, in today's day and age, it's kind of hard to imagine a band like Pine Grove making it on the pop charts. It's easier to maybe imagine a band like Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, who got, you know, Andrew got his start in something corporate and Jack's Mannequin, solid, you know, pop rock bands. And to see him fully transfer over to the pop airwaves is very interesting, but it shows that ebb and flow and that more people are actually noticing his music. Right. And I think for me, I just think that there are quite a few things wrong with the charts in general, especially, you know, the billboard charts, which are sort of the go-to for these things. And even billboard has stuff separated into genres. So I wouldn't necessarily call the top 40 pop music just because it's the top 40. So, you know, like I said, while I might disagree with him, this is still a very informative book. And I think it's a well-written book as well. He's definitely extremely informed on these. It's not like he was getting things wrong. It's just him and I have a different opinion. He wasn't getting the facts wrong or anything like that. So, you know, I still think this is a good book if you really want to dive into the facts and history of these genres and, you know, these specific artists and songs that he covers. Yeah. And actually, I kind of wish that there was maybe even a little more on Latin American music or culturally Hispanic music, because that is something we've seen, especially in the latter half of this current century going on so far. We've seen dominate the pop airwaves with artists like Daddy Yankee, who you might know as the guy behind that Gasolina song that we all dance to at like middle or high school um, dances. Who could forget that catchy <laughs> da-da-da-da Gasolina? Uh, anyway, but Daddy Yankee is back on the airwaves now with Despacito. And in the United States, it's a number one song at on many, many charts. And what's interesting is that the song is most Wow, if I could speak tonight, that'd be great. The song is um, mostly in Spanish and features Justin Bieber. And for laughs, you know, Justin Bieber famously forgot the words to Despacito and sang at a concert, ba ba ba. <laughs> so that's funny. I don't know if that music is necessarily as popular in the UK, though. So that would be my that's best true. guess as to why he might not have put it in the book because you know here obviously we have a lot of spanish speaking citizens in various parts of the country so it's not as surprising when songs like that become extremely popular because you know miami has a heavily influenced spanish speaking community and you know southern california and a bunch of the states along the the border obviously and i don't know what that looks like in the UK. I've never been there and I've, you know, never looked up the statistics or anything. I don't know how many immigrants they have there that would speak Spanish. So it might just be a case of that music isn't something that resonates in the UK. And so he probably didn't think to cover it when he was doing the initial UK version. That's true. But when I think about pop music, especially in like the 80s and 90s, some of the first bands that come to mind are Gloria Stefan and the Miami Sound Machine, 
or even the late Selena or Shakira going into modern day stuff, you know? So I can't picture even the UK pop scene being what it is without Selena, Shakira even, and Gloria Stefan. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. And I'm also going to have both Gasolina and Despacito stuck in my head now. <laughs> so this is fun. But yeah, going back now to the epilogue, I like how he included this quote from Simon Reynolds back in 1992. In the future, the artist will not be or will be not so much creator as curator, someone who takes historical resources from the archives and arranges them, finding provocative juxtapositions and unexpected affinities. So in a way, this book was, you know, an unexpected affinity with those weird provocative juxtapositions, because who else is going to compare metal music with bubblegum pop, really? Yeah, it's definitely interesting some of the comparisons he made throughout the book but I I don't know if I have too much left to say about it because like I said I didn't necessarily have the same opinion as him so I tried to approach it from a okay is this an informative book and is he getting these things right basically and he was able to do both of those so like I said for anyone looking to just learn more about it. This is definitely a book to check out. And one thing I will note too is that I did like when he sort of let his personality come through. And I don't have the exact quote or page or even chapter, but there was a moment where he was talking about black and white album art. And he made a comment that, you know, like even a nine-year-old would be disappointed with it or something like that. And it was little moments that like that, that sort of made me want to continue reading the book and made me feel a bit better about reading the book as well. Mm -hmm. And actually, what I also like about this book is that it kind of has ties back to books that we've already covered in this, like The Song Machine, for example. Um, in the epilogue, I'm looking at a sentence right now. Oh, man, and now I'm going to have Kylie Minogue songs stuck in my head. The sentence I'm looking at is literally under... Um, songs about or songs that Kylie Minogue did so this is fun um, but yeah the Backstreet Boys became stars in 1996 thanks to a shy Swedish hit machine called Max Martin Right. his style was rhythmically martial and lyrically awkward and you know it's interesting because that whole book did actually talk a lot about Max Martin and hit producers that basically were song machines yeah and I feel like he gave a little mention to that in this book, but he probably could have also covered some of these big producers a lot more too, especially the ones who pretty much strictly work in pop music, because I'm sure there were still producers like that, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, 70s, whatever. I know he did mention like Phil Spector, but that that's a whole different story with that man, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean... It is interesting in here. Oh, God. Really? Oh, Jesus. This is what he chooses to represent United States music. Oh, boy. Uh, While post-grunge blue-collar rock by the likes of Nickelback, Live, and Creed continued to be hugely popular in the States, it had no sense of progress. It existed, like Walmart existed, to serve a need, a consumer demand. 
Yeah, I remember that sentence too. Oh, what a what a cringeworthy sentence. Oh boy. Um, I mean, live isn't terrible, but keep in mind, I grew up in Central PA, and the band Live with their hit "Lightning Crashes" is from York. So you know, I kind of have a soft spot for them. But Creed and Nickelback are fun to snark on. Especially, you know, imitating Scott's dabs with arms wide open. Um, anyway, it's interesting, too, that in here, he also mentions that the first flush of the pick-and-mix digital era has led to many of Pop's biggest names appearing on one another's records. Rihanna and Coldplay, Katy Perry and Kanye West, David Guetta and Flo Rida, and Nicki Minaj. And that goes back to kind of what I was talking about with Ariana, because, you know, she's collaborated with some of the biggest names. Like, she sang um, Don't Dream It's Over with Miley Cyrus, which I think they initially sang together for a Happy Hippie video series, which is Miley's foundation that I believe helps LGBTQ youth across the nation. And of course, we know that Ariana and Nikki have collaborated on Side to Side and Coldplay and Rihanna with Princess of China. And Coldplay and Beyonce, too, with on that same album. No, no, that wasn't the same album. Never mind. Different albums. See, I'm getting my discographies mixed up now. I'm so <laughs> sorry. But um, yeah, also, it's also really interesting that he thinks the modern pop era has come to an end, saying that greed, ignorance, and the compact disc of or, yes, the compact disc, the Trojan horse of digital technology, brought the modern pop era to an end. And I'd say that, yes, we are in a very digital era right now, but I wouldn't say that modern pop is over, per se. It's still reshaping itself. It's constantly working in new ways. Like, uh, take Selena Gomez's um, new song with Kygo. It has a very country feel to it, but it still has a lot of that electronic influence that we're seeing in a lot of modern pop music, but it's still, at its very core, a solid pop song. Right. Or even, say, uh, the new stuff that Katy Perry has put out, it has admittedly much more of an urban sound than you would expect from a white artist, in a way, she's kind of pulling a Miley during the bangers era, especially with Swish Swish, which, yikes. But we're, it's, it's hard to really say when one era ends and another begins. And you can't say that something is over just because of greed, ignorance, and the compact disc. Yeah, and I think that sort of makes this feel slightly out of date because we've been in the digital era for quite a while now and plenty of pop artists have had huge success even with you know streaming services coming about and fewer and fewer people buying music so right I, I think this book could use an update which I think is sort of how we felt when we read Nothing Feels Good by Andy Greenwald it's like some of these right. concepts were just a little out of date because I'm thinking in terms of Brit artists Adele Adele is still out there breaking records, and I mean, she's Billboard's number one greatest of all time Billboard 200 artist with her album 21. She broke records when 26 came out, 
or 25 there we go 25 <laughs> she broke records when 25 came out um it's interesting to not see any mention really of her in here because she helped also change the british music landscape and it even you know interesting to see that top of the pops which if i'm remembering this correctly was a lot like you know american bandstand in the united states which obviously doesn't exist anymore and a lot of it didn't really exist when we were kids to watch it on tv but it says the top of the pops uh could not survive the digital tv era because i guess you know it's such an old antiquated format that people don't want to watch music videos of the pop or the top pop songs anymore, much like, you know, TRL met its demise. Yeah. And I think the way music is going on TV and everything is a lot different from how it was back then with American Bandstand and Top of the Pops and everything. Even on MTV, we've seen that music videos aren't really played all that much. And I know that bands and some of the scenes we listen to will still release music videos, but those largely just go straight to YouTube. And I think they would have to do something like that where they have like a weekly YouTube YouTube show instead of a television broadcast or something like that. And those can be pretty successful because there are these, you know, YouTubers who make tons of money through advertising on YouTube and everything just because their videos get so many hits. But I think, you know, we can definitely both agree that an update would have been welcome when he did the first American version, especially since it seemed like the book sort of ended around mid 2000s, like 2006 or so. And so much has happened since then. It'll be interesting to see if he does update it. But do you Mm want to go ahead and give a ranking for this book? give this book a three out of five going on the star scale just because it is a lot of information and I feel like some of it would have been beneficial if it wasn't left out of the American edition because some of these jumps were kind of a little drastic and the way it was chunked up okay I could definitely see this being used in a college course it caught my attention because it did remind me of the popular music in America class that I took my freshman year of college, where we literally started at the bare beginnings in like the 1900s right? and continued on well through at that point, 2009. Yeah. And for me at Drexel, I took two classes that were strictly just music history. And we literally started with like Gregorian chants or something like that. So I definitely Ooh, took monks, always a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I definitely took a lot of classes that were or that had books that were very similar to how this was written. So I also gave it a three out of five over on Goodreads. And it just sort of almost felt like I was back in a class needing to read this book. And I think that made it sort of feel more like a chore than it did a book for the podcast. And like you said, it definitely was informative. So I'm glad we sort of agree on that, you know, ranking there and everything. I think we've been pretty close with most of the books we've read, though. I think so, yeah. And one of the big things about this book is it is good for history nerds like myself. Like, I was getting into this book a lot more than you were. I mean, I know your text just <laughs> complaining about having to get through is just 
massive behemoth of a book. <laughs> Which is my fault for suggesting it because I should have maybe like flipped through the book first before just taking a picture and sending it to you and be like, hey, what about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was the longest book we've read for this podcast. And I think it was a good challenge. And it was well worth the wait to talk about our uh, May book in June. <laughs> but it's still the beginning of June. It's okay. I, yeah, like history nerds like me will definitely find this book to be interesting and we'll probably dive deeper into it more than someone like you who thought of it kind of as a chore because it was reading like a collegiate book. But I also enjoyed reading the books we were assigned in college. So I don't know what that says about me, really. Um, <laughs> I think it depended so on the book that. for me. As far as yeah, okay. Books. I mean, I've read some totally awful books and then totally great books, but this this definitely falls under the totally great um, ranking for me. Despite you know a semi, it probably like an average rating. Yeah, but I'm also thinking of that on not as a history nerd scale, as a general consumer, because today I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't want to read. Uh, let's see. In total, without the excess stuff, 552 pages, uh, 556 if we include the sources and the acknowledgments. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a long book. And considering the UK edition is even longer, I don't know if, you know, we would have needed an extra week on top of that for me to get through it. I remember reading about it on my library's website. And I'm going to go ahead and pull that up because there was an actual review of this book, which I will, in fact, be reviewing for the library's website solely because they're doing a summer reading program and adults can get it on the fun by writing reviews about books that they've read. Hooray. I think on Amazon, it was really hard for me to tell who was reviewing what book, which is a common problem on Amazon when there's multiple editions of a book or multiple, you know, versions of a product or whatever. It, it sort of gets a little convoluted right. in the reviews section there. So I kind of just skimmed through and then largely ignored it because I was like, I don't know which one this is talking about. Yeah. So it says here that... It has three and a half stars out of five, and it has two comments, one which looks... So all of these comments on my library's website are definitely from people who've checked out this book um, through the library system. And my copy still smells really new, so I don't think a lot of people have actually read it. Same. <laughs> and I mean, it looks brand new. I don't know. But one person said, this American edition has been heavily truncated. It's some 200 pages shorter than the UK original, with much of the material about British music gone, how provincial. I find that interesting that they thought much of the material about British music was gone, because I still thought there was a lot in here about right. British music. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense with the writer being from there and everything and the fact that we had, you know, sort of the UK invasion here and everything. But yeah, and I actually do want to read this other review because it's a really funny and B, I think it kind of sums up our feelings on the book together. So one person writes, usually when someone writes a book about pop music, they focus on a particular artist like Iggy Pop or Kurt Cobain a particular genre like punk or hip-hop, or a particular period, NYC in the 70s, Seattle in the 90s. 
pop music is so big and so splintered that few people attempt a comprehensive history anymore. Someone didn't tell Bob Stanley, who plays in the indie band St. Etienne. As the subtitle indicates, Stanley goes all in with this spirited, opinionated, wide-ranging, and very funny book. Everyone will find something to argue about, but also find new insights to familiar artists. Stanley is like a guy who run into... Wow, this English is awful. Um, Stanley is like a guy who run into at a party who turns out to know everything about every band ever. It could be annoying, but Stanley is a highly entertaining guide as he moves from punk to indie to reggae to hip-hop to techno and more. It's a far more successful version of Grail Marcus's recent Snooze Fest, A History of Rock and Roll in Ten Songs. One of the best music books in recent memory. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting take on it, but... I think that sort of wraps up our feelings on the book. Why don't we go ahead and end this with some recommendations? I only have one, but Megan, go ahead and give us yours. Oh, man. What have I been listening to this week that I really want to recommend? I've really, I've kind of been off the grid with actually recommending stuff. One thing I definitely do want to recommend is the Rookie Podcast hosted by Tavi Gevinson who is adorable and I love her. And it's it's a great listen. She gets into topics, you know, it's geared definitely towards teenage girls, which is okay. And I think she's a great role model for the teen girls out there. But um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty unique podcast. I mean, one of the episodes I listened to was her chatting with Ibtihaj Muhammad, a US Olympic fencer, about individuality, being a Muslim, and trying to find, you know, a way in society while trying to be modest, that sort of thing. And the other thing I am definitely going to recommend now that I think about it is the new Arcade Fire song, which is quite interesting. I think it's called, what, Everything Now? I like, I'm going to probably get a lot of flack for this, but... I like Arcade Fire. I always have. You know, Reflector might not have been their best album, but I like the dance um, track they're moving towards. And this Everything Now song has, like, a lot of, well, interesting vibes to it. Um, so it's worth listening to. It's by far not the worst Arcade Fire song released, and it could be fun. And if you're an Arcade Fire hater, what is wrong with you? You should go listen to their older discography to really get a feel about how good they are. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really listened to them too much other than when they've periodically had songs on the radio, maybe. And I don't listen to the radio nearly enough to even remember what those were at this point. But I also have a music recommendation this week, and it is simply to just go listen to Jason Isbell over on Welcome to Geekdom. I had done an episode on him with Craig Manning, and he has his new album, The Nashville Sound, coming out soon. It'll be out, you know, about a week after you guys get this episode. So listen to his older stuff, maybe start with Southeastern, check that out. He is definitely a great artist to sort of give you multiple genres in his albums. You'll get some rock, you'll get some country, you'll get some folk at times. It's definitely a good mix of things. 
Oh, and if you were lucky enough, like any of you listeners, not you personally, (laughs) Deanna, but if you were lucky enough to grab um, his record store day release this year, the Welcome, or Jason Isbell and the 400, live from Welcome 1979, Welcome to 1979, there we go. The two was covered on my record. (laughs) That's really good, and I think a lot of people would enjoy that. I kind of wish it came with a download code, but since it was recorded straight to analog i think not having it kind of gives it really that feel when you listen to it on a record player but it's it's a really really good album easily one of my favorite releases from this year i guess i could say that's the only one i haven't been able to listen to (laughs) because i didn't grab it probably because i don't think it's anywhere on the internet yeah i don't think so either i'm pretty sure i would have noticed had it been on apple music yeah, I think a lot of people would really enjoy it if they could actually listen to it and not have one of the, I think it was 4,000 copies. I, I'm i not sure. It was definitely a high number for Record Store Day, but for him as an artist and that being the only place you could get it and not being able to get digitally, it's kind of a low number, but... Yeah, actually, Ready Covers EP. Hey, we wrote about it in on the site. Uh... I think Chris put how many is going to be out here. So, yeah, it's a vinyl-only covers EP and recorded directly onto Lacquer. And no, it doesn't say how many copies is on it. Interesting. But it's definitely going for high prices on eBay right now, like <laughs> over 100 So I bet you know. I will not be buying that. But definitely just go listen to Jason Isbell. I think... Fans of a lot of different genres will be able to find something of his to get into. Oh, don't forget, the Menzingers covered him, too. I did not know that. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Maybe I did. I don't know. I don't know what it, I know it was anymore, on Megan. One of the, it was on one of the compilations that was recently released for, like, the ACLU or something. Oh, okay. I think I know what you're yeah, talking about. I think they covered 24 frames. Okay, I will definitely have to go check that out. I think I heard about it, did not listen to it. So oh, man. I will do you that. You will totally, <laughs> totally like it. Awesome. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thank you all for listening. And as always, we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.